I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, I sit down with Kristen Clay Ryman. Kristen is a 47-year-old physician, healer, and mother. She serves as a coach for medical students in my school program, and that's how I met her during first year. I've been looking forward to this conversation, which we recorded in the room she birthed her fourth child. In this interview, we discuss the death of her mother when she was 18, her own near-death experience fraught with pain, and how her spirituality is connecting with others. Before we talk more about Kristen, I want to talk about my long-form Sunday's posts. These are uh, my weekly reflections on my medical school experience from the first anatomy lab to now. You can find them in their entirety, as long as well as all of the on-death on interviews. You can find them at mnmwad.com. That is Mobility and Mindfulness Work of the Day, mnmwod.com. And uh, you can find... On April 29th, 2018, I published On a Stray Bullet. This week, I reflected on a patient encounter in the outpatient ophthalmology clinic. A day filled with routine post-op visits and follow-up appointments turned into a chance to reflect on the unpredictability of life and how I never really know what's on the other side of that door. Then more recently, on May 6th, 2018, I published On the First Trimester or Baby Chronicles Part 1. This week, I reflected on the first trimester of Mackenzie Kim's pregnancy. The past few weeks have been filled with love, connection, love and connection as we plan for a thanksgiving baby so we're pregnant uh fun fact and so you can read all about that um about what i've been thinking about the first last couple of weeks the crazy changes that have been going on uh you can find that at mnmlaw.com or you can search for on the education of physician at uh on amazon and find the whole collected works there so back to Kristen. Kristen is a being of light, having a human experience, moving through the physical plane and figuring that whole thing out. She's also a human, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a doctor, a witch doctor, according to some people, a teacher, a healer, a learner, a gardener, a singer, an aunt, and a cousin. Before Kristen dies, she wants to surf and play the guitar, to see all of her children unfold for as long as she can, to travel again with her husband, to bounce more, and to stay in connection with her intention. When Kristen dies, she wants no pain, to be in a place that is her home at the time, to host a giant party, and everybody to be cool with it. After Kristen dies, she wants people to awaken to their divinity. And in conclusion, Kristen says, to the humans, I stuck around for fun and to co-create something really awesome. And I don't really know what that is yet, but I really want to be part of a planet where we are all looking for the things in life that allow us to cultivate bliss. If you want to play in that playground with me, let's think about that together. Let's shine our light and do the things that we love, make choices that bring joy to ourselves and to those around us, because how fun would that be? This was an awesome conversation. We, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we uh, recorded this in the room that she birthed her fourth child in. So it's a, uh, it's it's called Trout Creek Healing Collective. It's a nice old building. I think it was upwards of a hundred years old, and uh, she used to live in that house for a good couple of years. Uh, during which time she birthed the, her fourth child in it. And uh, then she moved a couple streets, a couple houses down, uh, kept the house, uh, turned it into sort of like she part of it is a rental. Part of it is where she has her medical practice, um, like a small little room. And then she also has like a little runaround room, yoga studio. And that's where we recorded the interview. And that's where she gave birth to her child in a home birth and a water birth. And uh, we uh, while we were doing the interview, 
we had this beautiful look of the backyard over towards the actual trout creek that in you know of the name and uh a couple times during the interview we get distracted by all the birds that are flying around uh because it's it was right when spring was starting to really come in uh before the the cold had really abated so the birds were just in in migration and it was beautiful to see a couple times we were just like holy crap this is really cool so uh, this was a really great conversation. Uh, it was, uh, you know, we, we were recording like literally in her nest, you know, where she where she had a child, like where she's put so much love and energy. And um, we have this we, we talked about some really deep and, and, and powerful stuff. So there are, there are like two big nuggets that we talk about. One is the death of her mother and the other is her own near death experience. And so her mother died when she was 18 uh, at the age of 42. And uh, it was a rare cancer. And there's this crazy story about uh, how she was able to look up the case report and because it was such a rare cancer and uh, how she was there present for the death of her mother, you know, watching her take her last breaths. And then uh, when Kristen turns 42, the same age that her mother was when she died. Uh, Kristen has a, a near-death experience where she uh, has, you know, lays in bed with unbearable sciatic sciatic pain. She's uh, admitted and uh, she stops breathing because of all of the narcotics that are pumped into her. Uh, and she lost 30 pounds. And it's just this really wild story. And I think you'll, you, you know, hearing it from her, uh, it's really powerful. And you just hear, there's this one instance of her coming down uh, for dinner for the first time in five weeks and asking her family, like, what's going? on and uh it's just wild so you'll i think this is a really really great conversation uh for many reasons uh definitely for that nugget of those two stories and uh we talked a lot about um about this spirituality and what what like how connection is more of her for her the way she she uh relates to others and the way that she engages her spirituality and how uh, being close to people makes uh empathy easier but seeing things seeing all the hurt that's going on around us from a thousand miles away makes it really hard to feel that empathy and just otherwise you just get uh, overwhelmed and uh it's really really great conversation i think you're really gonna like it i hope that you have uh not been too bothered by my rambling and i hope that you've got some water going you're ready uh to boil some water for the tea or the coffee or whatever you're gonna do maybe you're gonna make oatmeal uh, because oatmeal, Mackenzie's been making a lot of oatmeal for her morning segments. And uh, whatever you're doing, you're ready for this lovely conversation with Kristen Clegg Ryman on Deaf. It is March 29th, 2018. I'm sitting here in the Trout Creek Healing Collective. Collective. I forgot that one. Uh, Trout Creek Healing Collective. And I'm sitting here with Kristen Ryman, and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Kristen, what are the four prompts? As far as I can recall, Eugene, mm -hmm. there I am, before I die, when I die, and after I die. Excellent. And how do you finish the first prompt, I am? I believe myself to be, slash I am, mm. <laughs> a being of light, having a human experience, moving through the physical plane, and figuring that whole thing out. <laughs> so um, there are like three parts to that. There's the, there's the being of light, uh, experience, like going through the world, and there's like, what, 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 what does it mean to be a being of light? 
I think, and this is maybe sort of my spirituality, right? Like what's outside myself that's larger than me. I mm-hmm. think there's a lot outside of myself mm-hmm. um, that's larger than me. And I think there's a creative force that's benevolent and loving. And, you know, I consider it kind of a light-based creative form. And I think that all of us are little little flicks of that, that have come off that that form and are experiencing the world through the physical plane and through our physical bodies and relationships here as a way to get perspective on ourselves. Mm-hmm. But that all of us, in, through our experience, including my little tiny sliver of experience, inform the larger whole and lead to sort of more, um, more self-awareness and understanding of us as a larger being. Mm-hmm. Like a, there's like a true, true collective. Yeah. So uh, going, so we'll circle back to the to the initial response. But uh, uh, was did you have a uh, religious or spiritual upbringing to your childhood? Um, I would say I had a religious indoctrination mm-hmm. that was you know handed down by my family with good intentions. That was a Protestant Christian, mm-hmm. you know Lutheran specifically mm-hmm. background, um, and I. I asked a lot of questions of that in my high school years of our church leader who ran the youth group, who was such a nice person, but never really gave me answers that satisfied me mm-hmm. and sort of led me to say, wow, if a person who's as smart and kind and thoughtful as he mm-hmm. can't answer my questions, perhaps religion isn't the right place for me to ask them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, over the course of many years, um, sought out other responders to that those questions of like you know really what are we here and how how, how does it make sense that you know if, if religion is really what what it's about there's not an all-encompassing loving narrative that goes with that for everyone mm-hmm. you know how is it that some people are gonna suffer and some people are gonna after death for example so I just wasn't satisfied mm-hmm. with that didn't seem like it was correct so so I think my spirituality has always been, if I look back, I never would have defined it as spirituality as a child, but I always felt very connected to animals and other people and my you know, loving grandparents and parents and siblings. You know, like I felt very much like there was something larger than me when I was connecting with another human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that, I would say, was my spirituality, was relationship with other beings. Mm-hmm. And how how has that matured now? Like, uh, what what do you have? Like, would you have anything that you would describe as a spiritual practice now? Um, I consider this part of my spiritual practice. You know, having a conversation with you, looking into your eyes, like sharing mm-hmm. something that's meaningful and makes me feel vulnerable, mm-hmm. and having you hold space and I hold space, and we together are in this in this conversation. Um, I think being a doctor allows so many opportunities for that kind of practice. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a privilege to to be invited into so many stories and to to be asked to bear witness to such um, intimate details of people's stories. Mm-hmm. And that always makes me feel like there's something larger in the room. Like there's a, like there's a very like it's like a, the nodes are important, but it's the connection between the nodes that is almost more important. Like the web that you create from the nodes is, is it has a higher order of, of magnitude. Of Absolutely, level. I think that's true. 
Um, my husband and I often talk about that third person that we create together, not like one of the monkeys that we built, but like <laughs> the third person that is the relationship, you know, mm -hmm. that needs tending. Mm -hmm. You know, I can tend me, I can tend him, he can tend me, he can tend him, but like to think intentionally about what our relationship is mm -hmm. and make choices that strengthen and foster and, and love that third thing, mm -hmm. um, that's a spiritual practice, I think. I think of spirituality as anything outside of yourself that is larger than you and, and provides opportunity for reflection and meaning building and you know loving and all sort of those higher order feelings. Um, so yeah, I mean I have other practices that I think helps keep me in the state that I can receive and and gift in those moments. Mm -hmm. Like I practice yoga and I get to sleep on time, and I don't use an alarm mm -hmm. most of the time, and I eat really well, and I drink a lot of water, and I exercise a little bit, <laughs> um, and I try to find something beautiful in every person, mm -hmm. and you know, and something to love in every person, and those, I think, are practices that I would say are spiritual practices for me, because they, they help me to stay clear about what matters, and what's available in the moment that could make the world a better place. I dig it. Yeah? I do too. I didn't know that was going to come out. <laughs> I've never said any of that before, but that's, that's true, I think, for me. Yeah, because it's uh, the, the whole the aspect of like wanting to maintain it, to get better at it, and uh, sustain it as a whole. That makes it like a spiritual practice, I think. Um, and so circling back to um, I, for, I forget the exact wording, but you have, I feel that you're a, a being of light experiencing this reality, mm -hmm. um, and then there's a, th a whole chunk that I kind of forgot. Do you, do you have to remember that? No, but if only we had a tape recorder. If only, that we could listen in real time. I think I said something about moving through the physical plane, learning how to navigate all that, and mm -hmm. you know, taking home the lessons or something. Mm -hmm. Is there... Um, what makes that, um, like, m like what makes it a reality for you? The the, the being of, like a being like are have there are have there been experiences that inform that? Um. Yes. So I, I literally someday feel like I'm walking among like on a different planet. Mm -hmm. You know, I have never fully resonated with my culture. Mm -hmm. And when I say my culture, I mean humanity, you know, human culture. Mm -hmm. I feel like <laughs> kind of an alien. And I, I would get very demoralized if I felt like um, people were bad. I think people, there's a lot of bad behavior. There's a lot of really small-minded, closed-hearted actions that humans take all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the story of beings of light that are trapped in human bodies with human contacts and human anxieties and human limitations helps me to feel better about my fellow creatures and myself when I'm, you know, acting small-minded and closed-hearted. You know, I feel like we have these limitations and they're really instructive. Mm -hmm. You know, they're something to be pushed through and navigated and transformed. Mm -hmm. And also experienced, you know. Also experienced. Yeah, it's a, for me. It's like a like I, I always I get impressed by real you know like beautiful actions 
but I, and then I try to always understand the negative ones, like the like when people act in a in a way that is reactive. I always try to understand, like I'm impressed, and then I'm under I don't understand, and it's just I always kind of like put into that dichotomy of like uh, of being able to process to just try to process those kinds of behaviors. Yeah, I think I do too, and it's really easy for me to do it when I'm face to face with someone. Like I really there's I really I cultivated the ability to find something to love about literally anyone who sits in front of me. Like, mm. I can find my way into that <laughs> headspace and into that set of limitations or set of experiences that might have driven someone to act in a way that I might find abhorrent. What troubles me and what keeps me from picking up the newspaper mm. and turning on the news for, like, 20 years <laughs> is that when I can't be present with people to find my way into their experience, I get really demoralized mm -hmm. and depressed by what people do to each other. Mm -hmm. So I, I have had a little um, blip in the last year and a half in terms of looking at the news and trying to cultivate <laughs> more of my citizenship so I can be more involved in mm -hmm. our world. Um, and I don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm strong enough to do that. Like mm -hmm. it's really too hard for me. It takes a lot of effort to be engaged politically and in, in within a community for a sustained amount of time. Like it's easy for like to get really mad about like one specific topic, but to be um, really well informed and really active in all of the many spheres, whether it's the environment, whether it's local politics, or like like zoning laws. It's there's just so much to get like up in arms about, but to, and it's very fatiguing. So when I see people that are consistently politically engaged, I'm always very impressed because I'm like, that's so much like just effort and grit that it requires. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's like, it's like going through like the, like, like a surgical residency. It's like it, you have to be like a very specific kind of person to be able to, to endure it basically. Yeah. I don't think I'm that person. So I rely on my husband who is very tuned into everything and will tell me what's up. <laughs> I have a bunch of other friends who are very tuned into everything and will tell me what's up, but mm. I pick and choose so I don't feel inundated with the sadness of the world. Mm. It's too much. It's too much to not be present for. If I'm present for it, it's actually rejuvenating. Like I can hold space for terrible suffering and it actually charges me up to be mm. doing that work. But witnessing it from afar is um, very draining and mm. damaging. Yeah, just to scroll through it and to see all of all. Yeah, of I don't do that. Yeah. I don't scroll. It's <laughs> a good thing. No, I don't scroll. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a being of light. Maybe. I mean, that's Maybe. just a theory. The theory. You feel that that way. I feel that that's true. I hope that's true. What else are you? Well, I'm a human, obviously. Mm -hmm. Although my children sometimes think I'm not. <laughs> um, I'm a mother. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a friend, I'm a doctor, I'm a witch doctor, according to some people, <laughs> my children and some of their friends. Um, what else am I? Those are the big categories, maybe? Those are my roles, like my mm. Confucian rights. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm a teacher, I'm a healer, I'm a learner, um, I'm a gardener. I would like to be a surfer at some point. That's maybe getting to before I die. Like, I'd really like to learn how to surf. Um, I'd like to be a guitarist as well. I'm a singer, but only privately. And when I say privately, I mean anyone who's close by and can hear me. 
but not like you know any kind of performance performance Official, situation. Like yeah, so. but I love to sing and harmonize. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an aunt. I'm a cousin. Granddaughter, great granddaughter. Okay, so there, so I see a lot of the, that big list in like two main categories. It's like one is uh, the familial, like uh, the role in like the generation, like within the the family tree, and then the second category is sort of the 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 healer, like the doctory sort of thing. It's like the like not I wouldn't say profession, but like the um, like your. Um, my your, hobbies. Your hobbies, like yeah, the things that you do and you love to do, like gardening. Um, so, uh, which one do you want to talk about first? The, the the sort of family generational aspect or the the hobbies, the things that you do? I don't know. Which are you most interested in hearing about? Um, I think I think family first, and then we'll talk about the other thing, and then we'll and then we'll jump into the the next problem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what um, like what what. Like we're in the space where you 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 were a mom for the fourth time, right? And so what uh, what does it mean to be a mother? Because that is a whole big kitten caboodle. Yeah, it's it's absolutely the most challenging, draining, demanding, um, worthwhile job mm-hmm. role I've ever played. I've ever played. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because it calls out of me all sorts of things I didn't necessarily look to learn or want to learn or care to learn, and yet here we are. You know, it's like the path that um, is never-ending in terms of opportunities to challenge yourself and find your gaps in, you know, in terms of what you know and don't know and skill sets. and It's just, it's like, you know, chronic internship. except at the end of the day like you love the product you know it's like it's really interesting I remember my firstborn when he came and I was just like how do I love this perfect stranger so much and he's so demanding of me (laughs) and like I can't do any of the things I want to do and yet I don't want to do any of those things anymore Mm -hmm. I was really sure that I would have I had my first baby right after my first year of medical school. Mm-hmm. So I was pregnant during anatomy, if you can imagine that excitement. And I remember thinking and telling my friend, Rachel, I, I worry that I'm gonna be so caught up with medical school and yet I'm gonna wanna hang out with this baby because I know that's really important for early <laughs> development, but I'm gonna be really interested in learning. And I was, I loved medical school. Mm-hmm. And I taught a lot of the classes and I, was like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna pull myself away from my studies? Oh my God! I didn't want to look at those books. I just wanted to hold this little person and just stare at him and nurse him and stare at him some more and stay up all night doing that. And and it was um, a real surprise, very unexpected, mm-hmm. how much I loved it. Like, my husband too. We both were just like, why did we wait so long to do this? This is like the <laughs> best thing ever. And I haven't slept in three days. So, yeah, what does it mean to be a mother? It, it means it's the most important adventure of my life, mm-hmm. for sure. For sure. So, um, how long had you and your, your uh, how long had you, had you and your husband been together at that point in medical school, like when you had the first kid? How long had he and I been together? Mm-hmm. We met in college. We swam on a swim team all through college. Mm-hmm. We traveled together after college across country. Um, that's when we started dating, and then we 
we, I went to China for two years and he went to Texas for a year and he came to China the second year I was there and we were, so we were dating pretty much from college, the end of college onward. And then we went to Texas after China where he had started his grad student, his, his um, you know, PhD in mm -hmm. philosophy. So we were in, in, um, in Austin when we got married, when we decided to get married. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew we were getting married except for us maybe. <laughs> and we got married and um, moved to California. So we had been together from 92 to 98 when I started med school and then we had mail in 99. So one year into marriage, but you know, how, much, how much math yeah. that was into a relationship, yeah. I see. Um, and so this this will be a little bit of a bomb to drop on you, and this because I'm gonna release this in like in the future. Um, uh, Mackenzie's pregnant, and uh, wow. we found out uh, like about a week ago. Thank you. And so it's it's uh, like your like you relating that about like how it's like staring like it like it changes, and so like even just the idea of fatherhood is like a mantle that is sort of settling on me, and it's a very in a weird way, but it's like in a way that I'm like. I don't know, like, I was like, oh, this is, this is like the next step that I've been like, kind of like waiting for, or like, like assuming that would happen. I was like, no, this is really it. Like they're, like they're, that's really happening. It's a very, yeah, it's a very different, um, I don't know. I feel like I've leveled up in life and it's a very yeah. weird thing. And like, you know, it'll be a whole different thing when I actually have something to hold. Um, so it's, it's a very, I, I, I'm starting to, I'm starting to get like a shade of that, I think. Congratulations, um, thank Eugene. You. Thank that's you. That's really exciting. Yeah. So, uh, and so it's just that, that's why I'm like very curious about the whole, like, yeah, I'll tell you anything you want to know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, okay. So, so we talked a little bit about motherhood. There's a great heron flying over there. Do you see that? Yeah. So we talked about motherhood. Uh, what about daughterhood? Because you're uh, 47, right? Mm -hmm. Almost 48. Mm -hmm. uh, you're getting to an age where the parents are getting older, if they're mm -hmm. still alive. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a very weird transition to make, I, I imagine. Because I, I know some other, I have some friends who are older, and you know, for them, the, the starting to take that responsibility of, on, of the parents when you know, they might have been very active, or they might, you know, they raised them mm -hmm. uh, to sort of that like little bit of a switch. How how what is that like? Or are you have you even started to experience that? Well, my mom passed away when I was eighteen, mm -hmm. so I have a wonderful stepmom mm -hmm. and a wonderful dad who's still alive and well, and they live in California. Um, my husband's parents are local, and they're you know together and well. Um, and I have started to think about, you know, what it's like when your parents get old and, you know, mm -hmm. infirm and need your help and all that. And I really don't know what's going to happen. I think, you know, part of, you know, a large part of me will say, well, why don't we just move back to California and I'll take care of my parents, <laughs> you know? Um, but we have a lot of deep roots here now and, you know, my kids have deep roots and Greg's family is close by and his parents are also aging and, mm -hmm. you know, so... Yeah, I haven't really thought much about it in a practical kind of way. Like, I haven't had a lot of conversation. Although my parents have said, my stepmom has said, don't worry about us. We're just going to go to the cabin and die like a couple of old natives here. Who, you know, when the heat goes out and we forget to turn on one year. And I say, hmm, I'm not sure that's an ideal way to check out. But, but you know, my mom died when I was 18. And that's, you know, that's like my worst nightmare coming to pass, you know, mm -hmm. at age 18, mm -hmm. that age when you're like separating and launching and like 
get, you know, try to like cut the, the cord bomb. and then like, oh wait, the cord is really gone and she's like not coming back. And that's, um, I think that really changed how I think about death. Mm -hmm. um, she was 42 when she died of a very rare cancer that um, was so rare that there were only 11 case reports in the world of it when she died of it. And many years later, when I was in medical school and taking pathology, I looked up the disease, mm -hmm. and there were then 12 reports, and she was number 12. And I recognized oh, wow. the details of her in the report, mm. um, which was eerie and you know sick and weird and sad and all that. Um, but yeah, a really rare cancer that took her very young, and she had four kids. I think my um, perspective on death is in many ways shaped by that. You know, like I feel like the worst has already happened. Like mm -hmm. nothing else can touch me in a way. Because mm -hmm. if you if you were any younger, it would have been a different experience. And if you were, it, it's just like that eighteen. That is a very odd age. That that threshold of you know, the adulthood. Yeah, I think my sister had a really hard time. She was ten. Mm. You know, she was at that age of, like, going to bed every night saying, I hate my mom kind of thing, and then I wish she died, and then poof, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, magical thinking and the kind of, you know, how much power did I have over that? And mm -hmm. so that has been, that was really hard for her. My brother, um, who's a couple years younger than I am, you know, was really sad. My dad was, I mean, it was really awful. We had, the, he had they had a two-year-old, like, my youngest sister was two. So, yeah, that sucked. And, um, you know, I've gotten close, I've gotten sort of back in touch with her over the years, just through a variety of like, you know, connections to connect with my mom. But um, when I was 42, I had a very interesting near-death experience that I think really like changed me. Like, in dramatic ways. I had really, um, I was living here, I had this baby in this room, and I was like up all night nursing this baby, and um, was waking up every morning feeling really wrecked, like really, you know, um, like a truck had hit me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, this is, you know, I always feel a little tired when I'm nursing for a year all night and not sleeping at all. Mm -hmm. But and maybe it's just that I'm 42 now, or 41, and maybe it's just that you know, I've been through residency and I'm, you know, everything's different because I'm ex exhausted. Um, and about that time, I met this woman who came to me as a patient and she, she said, listen, I have chronic Lyme. Nobody believes me. Mm -hmm. If you, if you want to be my doctor, you have to read this first. And she hands me this like stack of internet research and something passed between us. Like, like, you know, in Babe, when the farmer takes the pig and the thing passes between them and they're like, oh, yeah, we have to do something together. And I took that thing and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to read that. And I read it all. <laughs> and as I was reading through it, I was like, oh, my God. Lyme's like this super political disease and we're not, we weren't trained about that. And we just learned the guidelines, which, by the way, are super, super politically driven and written by people with major conflicts of interest. Oh, and by the way, there's actually published research, and here it is that shows that you can culture it out of a knee 10 years after a year of IV triaxone, and it's still active even though there's no pain, and oh my God, I've missed it all over the place, and oh my God, I've missed it in me, and this is what I have. I was super freaking out. 
And I had had a tick bite, a rash, and a month of doxy the first year I lived out here, you know, years ago. And I was like, I, all, everything I was reading was saying, a month of doxy doesn't get it, it probably persists, it's a very stealth pathogen, very slow growing, and I was getting super paranoid, and my brain wasn't working, and I was getting, I was so tired. And I remember thinking one day, I'm, I'm going crazy with this. I just need another tick bite to like convince me to wean my kid and get on doxy again. Mm-hmm. And the next day, no, maybe it was a couple, it was three days later, in November, nursing in the middle of the night, I like pulled a deer tick off of my ass. <laughs> and within two days, I had a big bullseye rash. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, we're done, mister. And I got on, you know, antibiotics. And I was, had been reading that you can't just treat it for a month because it doesn't go away and you have to really knock it back and mm-hmm. go a couple of life cycles, which is three weeks long, blah, 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 all the stuff that my head was full of. I was like, that's what I'm doing. So I treated myself for three months. I was like sick. I was sleeping 12 hours a night. I was febrile. I had like pain everywhere, like certain joints. I couldn't pick up my baby, stop nursing him. Mm-hmm. And I finally felt better after three months. And then two weeks later, I woke up in the morning and all my symptoms had come back. And I was like, what is happening? And it wasn't just my symptoms. There was an additional piece, which was like a knife in my sciatic nerve all the way to my foot. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't move. I'd had sciatic pain and I'd had back surgery at 18, mm-hmm. you know, when my mother died. So I was like, okay, there's so much meaning here. I'm going to journal. I'm going to talk to my, you know, clairvoyant. I'm going to just get, get down in there and like clean all this out and work my spiritual practice to like heal all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. And I did it. I did it. I did it. I did it. I was super into it. I did all that stuff. I cleared it, tapped all the stuff. Nothing. Knife to the floor. I mean, it was unbearable. And I worked through it, and I was working long hours, and I was working in the inner city clinic at that time. We were trying to build something, and I was overdoing it. And, no, mm-hmm. you know, it was craziness. And one morning I woke up, and I was like, I can't move. And I drove myself, despite not being able to move, to the ER in like 10 out of 10 pain because it was 4 in the morning. I didn't want to wake anyone. And I got there, and they were like, oh, you probably have a bulging disc. I'm like, yeah, I know that that's part of this, but, like, I, I, I can't do this anymore. And they were like, fine, medication, Valium, Vicodin, go home with that. And so I went and laid in my bed on Valium and Vicodin for like a week. And I was fine in my bed. But the minute I would get out of bed, I would have unbearable pain, unbearable. Mm-hmm. So I just laid in my bed. At the end of a week, I was in so much pain in the middle of the night. My husband was like, you have to go back to the hospital. So he drove me to the hospital where they admitted me for a week, where I writhed in pain for a week on a PCA, you know, on a dilated pump, mm-hmm. you know, which nearly killed me. Like they had to call in the Narcan in and like go nuts and, you know, yeah, I stopped breathing. I remember lying there going, it's been a really long time since I took a breath. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was that kind of craziness. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, I was like, no, you're not putting steroids in my back. Like, what if this is Lyme that's gone to my, you know, to my disc and where there used to be a wound, which is I know what Lyme does now. And no, you know, if you want to put steroids, you got to put a pick line and three antibiotics and here they are. And I'm managing all this from my haze, haze, not no memories of this because mm-hmm. I was on these crazy drugs. It was insanity. So I came home after the after the, you know, steroid epidural, still in pain, still unable to move, in my bed, 
you know, on a fentanyl patch at this point, mm. and Vicodin, and a muscle relaxant. I mean, it was insanity. Mm -hmm. This is not the trajectory I thought I would find myself on. And I lay there for five weeks in my bed, and I lost 30 pounds from what I am now, and I looked like a corpse. And I remember there had been some conversations that were happening prior to all this craziness in the Lehigh Valley about people who wanted to have an intentional community and people who wanted to create a biodynamic organic farm and people who wanted to do the holistic healing center and that was part of my little tribe, that last bit. And so we had started talking and gathering and so this meeting had been set up months before this even started and I went to this meeting and it was at Melinda Tony's house or her practice out in Catasauqua. Do you know her? She's not here anymore, but she was a longtime family doc in the Lehigh Valley who's also a homeopath and she um, was part of this little group. And so I remember sitting in that group, which I didn't drive to because I was on all these drugs. You know, mm -hmm. my father-in-law drove me there. You know, he drove 30 minutes to pick me up and drive me out there and then, you know. And I'm sitting in this group and everyone's like talking about what they want to bring to this community and whether they can build it together. And I remember thinking, just sitting here going, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing at all to offer. And at the end of this, someone said, well, wouldn't it be cool if like you start, I start sharing my gifts and she starts sharing her gifts and he offers what he does. And we all learn what we different, you know, the different things. Like she's a sound practitioner. She uses Tibetan healing bowls. She does homeopathy. And I said, as we went around offering things, I said, I have nothing to offer. I am so broken that all I can offer you is that I will receive whatever anyone wants to offer me. And Melinda said, come tomorrow. And I said, okay. So Greg, my husband, drove me back tomorrow. And um, I sat on her couch for two hours and told her my whole story, you know, the one, the abridged version I've given to you. <laughs> and look at all these birds. Yeah. They're like hawks. Yeah, those are not normal. Those are, those are definitely like eagles They're or hawks. big or raptors. There's like 12 of them. Yeah. That's, that's cool. I've never seen that happen in this yard. <laughs> that's really wild and at the end of this two hour visit where I just like unloaded my whole story she said alright you found your, your remedy congratulations and she like bustled off to like whip it up in her kitchen mm -hmm. like she literally like went to her kitchen and whipped it up out of you know eye of newt whatever it was right <laughs> and I just lay there like a shell in her couch and shook and she came back in and she's like okay Kristen here we're gonna give you this, give you this, give you this, take it this way, you know how to take homeopathy, right? Text me tomorrow, let me know how your pain is. Mm -hmm. And I said, my pain, like, my pain isn't even the worst of it. Mm -hmm. And she was like, what's the worst of it? Poor woman, I'd already spent two hours <laughs> of her time. I said, I feel like I'm dying. Like, I look in the mirror and I look like my mother when she was lying on her deathbed, dying of cancer, eaten away, I look like a corpse. I smell like my mother when she was dying. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have to will my diaphragm to contract and go through the motions of breathing. And what I hadn't told her was that about three days earlier, three days, five days earlier had been Easter, 
which was the day my mother died at 42. It was the year I was to be 42. Mm-hmm. And at dinner, like two nights earlier, I'd come down and my husband was like, yay, Kristen's coming down for dinner. And I was like, yay, big deal. What are you talking about? And he goes, this is the first time you've down, been down for a meal in five weeks. And I was like, holy crow. You know, I'd always imagined when my mom had died at 42 and left four kids that that's what would happen to me. But then I had my own kids and I was like, clearly not. Like, <laughs> that's not happening to me. Mm-hmm. And yet suddenly I was like, oh my God. And I said, okay, you guys must have thought mommy was upstairs dying or something, kind of like making a joke. We're sitting right in there. And they all like nodded and looked down. And I was like, okay, raise your hand if you really thought mommy was upstairs dying. And they all raised their freaking hands. And I was like, oh my God, I've done it. Like, I, I did it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was actually going to do it. And yet here everyone is processing my death and leaving them behind. And that was devastating. So I, I said to her, I don't know if I'm dying or not. I feel like I'm dying. And she said, your mother died at 42. That was her path. No one can determine what path you're on but you. You know, if you live or die, you need to tell me because it makes every bit of difference in terms of how I'm supporting you on this pathway. Are you trying to live or trying to die? Text me tomorrow, let me know what your answer is. Yeah, right? So I said, okay. And I went outside, you know, hobbled out in my little fentanyl patch and got in the car with Greg and I told him the story. He said, do me a favor and text me as well. (laughs) Poor man who had been doing everything, everything, everything. Including, you know, taking care of the one-year-old while he was coaching the five-year-old in basketball and taking the other one to swimming, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. So I went to bed that night and I lay in my bed and I thought, What is it? Am I trying to live or am I trying to die? And normally I have a pretty quick awareness of what my answer is. And I had no clue, Mm -hmm. none. It was blank. It was like a blank screen. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. What do I, how do I make that decision? How do I make any decision? I think about myself on a path. I imagine what that path would feel like. I go through the feelings and then I know my answer. So I'm dying. And I instantly saw playing out ahead of me. Lots of good things, you know? My husband would find a new, younger wife, maybe, and, you know, the kids all know how to use the Ouija board, we'd be in close contact (laughs) for birthdays and holidays. Like, it would be, you know, my work would continue. It was already continuing. Like, the inner city clinic had survived. Mm -hmm. Everyone was, you know, traumatized, but everyone got over it, and the world was still turning, and I I could be dead. Mm -hmm. And I had zero emotion, which is unusual for me. And then I thought, okay, that's interesting. Well, I could also, I could live. And no emotion, but I had this really strong awareness. You're only sticking around for love, for fun, for bliss, like no fear. No, no kind of worrying about whether you're becoming a Lyme doctor and what that means to your tribe of doctors. No like thinking people are gonna burn you at the stake for your thoughts about how to heal people. If you're sticking around, you're going to be full on you and not none of that bullshit. Mm -hmm. No fear, you know? 
And I was like, that's really interesting because that sounded like an ultimatum. And yet I have no awareness of any feelings about that. So I went to sleep. Next morning, got up, same thing. I went through that whole process. And as soon as I had said it, I was like, I don't really, in my mind, I was like, I'm never going to make this decision. And this next thing I knew, I was out of bed and I was walking downstairs and I was walking into the basement and I was getting into our endless pool and I was swimming. I don't even know how I got in there. I was so weak and you have to like, it's super not to code. Like you have to traverse all this crazy <laughs> stuff. And I was in there swimming and I was like, oh my God, how did I get here? So I swam on for seven minutes, which is kind of my perfect max. <laughs> Having been a competitive swimmer for way too long, that's like my perfect amount. <laughs> and I got out and I came upstairs and I sat in the kitchen and I ate breakfast with our nanny at the time. And I was like, oh, this is weird. I'm in the kitchen eating breakfast, unusual. Because I'd been in my bed for five weeks. Mm-hmm. So the next thing I did is I got up and I got on a little Lanta bus and I bumbled through town, you know, like a half an hour over bumps to go to like two yards away, you know, two miles away. And I get in the hot pool there and I do my therapy and then I come home on the Lanta bus and I get out of the car and I walk into our garden out there and I sit on the bench. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I'm outside sitting on a bench. The red bud is blooming. It's springtime and I, this is the first I've noticed anything outside of my bedroom. This is not how dying people behave. And so I texted Melinda and I was like, I don't know what this answer really means, but you should know this has been going on. Mm-hmm. And she was like, congratulations, sounds like you're choosing life. Keep <laughs> up the work, yeah, keep it up. So every day was like that. You know, I got into bed that night and I was like, hello stranger, like I haven't, I've been cheating on my bed all day with life, but I hadn't really made the decision in a conscious way, which is mm-hmm. so bizarre for me. I'm used to using my head informed by my heart and my gut. And it was like, I was just this sort of a zombie, like moving forward. Mm-hmm. And that's how I remained for like a year. I mean, it was more and more like myself and I gained my weight back and I, but I felt very much like I was, I had an out of body near death. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like I, I'd come back from somewhere very far away. Mm-hmm. So I think my answers to the before I die, when I die, and after I die are, I don't know what's going to come out, but I kind of feel like I've already been there. You know? Mm-hmm. It's uh, when you were telling me about the, like, the, the thought experiment of like uh, dying or not dying, it reminds me of, uh, of um, I was talking with Mike Watson and, um, we were talking about uh, a, a book that he was reading about the Shackleton expeditions to Antarctica. Yeah. And uh, they were like down there for two years. They were starving, cold, like below 50 and uh, or 50 below. And uh, they they like some people died, some people didn't. And the ones that didn't die were the ones that were like, we need to figure out a reason that why we're living. And it can't be just that we want to continue living because dying is so easy. It's, it was, it was just like, just stop, you just stop trying and then you die. And it's, it's great because you're no longer suffering for the two years in Antarctica. And the ones that survived were the ones that were like, we need to stay alive so that we can tell others about what happened. Like we need, there needs to be a a larger reason than just the person. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was just thinking about that, just how it's, there's a, some, it's like especially when when you're in that deconditioned near death catodic state where your body's basically prepared to die like that smell of death too it's just there's a you're it's you're 
it's so easy. Like it, it, I imagine at least I've never been in that experience, but it's just uh, like the 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 it has to be like a choice to continue going, and it's and it's odd, it's difficult that the that your near death experience was so drawn out. You know, it's not like you were surfing and you like drowned and you looked up. I swear to you, the next time I have a near death experience, <laughs> I would like it to not involve pain. Mm-hmm. I'm I. I remember lying there thinking after months and months and months, because even after I, I stopped lying in bed all day, I was still in unremitting pain, mm. like unremitting pain. The suffering was gone. Mm. It was just pain. But the suffering had disappeared. But it was unbelievable. And every time I had pain, I would lie on my back for months, for like a year and a half. I was mostly on my back in faculty meeting, in, be- in precepting, in clinic in between patients in my own clinic at Lehigh Valley, I would lie down and put my feet up and type my notes on my back in between patients because it was unbelievable pain. And yet it went completely away when I laid down on the floor. (laughs) And I asked my friend Michael one day, I was lying in his entryway after dropping a kid off to play in his house and I was lying there amidst the shoes, you know, (laughs) with my feet up the stairs just chatting. And that was like normal at that point. I mean, it was normal. Mm. I look back and I'm like, you know, it's kind of like pumping my breast milk, watching you know my t- med school videos on double speed with like my lab partner Corey, who was horrified, and I'm just like, oh, it, get over it, Corey, you're a doctor. <laughs> now I'm like, I can't believe I did that. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel the same way. Like I can't believe I spent a year and a half, like pretty much lying around the Lehigh Valley in all these <laughs> professional roles, and yet that was the only thing I could do. It's mm-hmm. the only thing I could do. It, there was no other choice. And I said to Michael once, what do you think I'm learning from? Like, why am I still, I had this moment of self-awareness, like, oh, here I am on the floor again, I'm on your shoes. I was like, Michael, why am I lying on my back all the time? Do you have any, any understanding of this? Which is a weird question to ask him. And yet he like jumped on it. He was like, I think you're trying to learn about what it feels to be downtrodden. And I said, huh, well, yes, that's definitely <laughs> one of the learnings. Yeah. I'm sorry, I got off track. You no, that, that, uh, there was no track. There's, there's no, no track. track. There's oh, no track. There's no track. You we make the track. We great. make the track. <laughs> the only track is the four prompts, and that's it. Yeah. And so what, uh, I mean, okay, you, you've laid, like, the the first, like, two acts of the story out, I feel like. You, like, okay. you set the stage, we, we go through the, the conflict, but, like, where's the, where's the third act? Where, like, what... Uh, what did you learn from that experience? Like, what, where's the falling action of the of the you were laying down for a year and a half of, around Lehigh Valley? Like, mm-hmm. what, where, 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 what happened after that? So, maybe nine months after that, mm-hmm. after I got back on my feet but was still in a lot of pain, I went back to work. I considered it sort of vocational rehab. You know, how do I learn how to be a worker bee human in the world of working humans again, mm-hmm. given all this pain? Um, I did a bunch of physical, you know, I got in hot water physical therapy three times a week for months and months and months. And then I switched to gentle yoga five times a week for months and months and years. Actually, I still do it. Um, But during that time, I was really struggling still with, like I said, the suffering had gone, but there was still this kind of little bit of angst over like, why am I still in so much fucking pain. Like, what is there to be learned? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I can check off the list so many things that I've learned, and yet here I am. You know, I've, I've learned that I can't be in toxic relationships or environments, so I got out of the Lehigh Valley clinical scene, and I started my own practice in my house with my big fluffy dog and a little <laughs> cup of tea and my kids peeking in, and I 
move towards this wellness center thing and started cultivating that whole intention with a group of people I was talking about. There were all these changes that I think had to be made and required at that time for me anyway, a real, a real kick in the butt, you know, mm-hmm. that hurt like a mother. <laughs> and, and that's what it, that's what happened. And yet I felt like I've made all the changes. Like, what do you want from me? I'm still in pain. And so about nine months into that, I was in California for a conference. And I remember taking my heat. I took a TENS unit on the plane. I had it going on the plane. I had acupuncture needles in me. I had, you know, <laughs> Motrin on board. I maybe had some, like, gabapentin. No, not gabapentin. I think I had a lidocaine patch. I mean, I was all, I was like, I am ready for this conference because there's nothing that I can't get through with all these, like, helpers. And yet I was still in so much pain. It only helped to lie on the floor. So that's what I did for the whole conference is lie on the floor on a heating pad on the side, typing notes. <laughs> and at the end of that conference... I met up, and I actually met at the conference unexpectedly, one of our former residents, Kay, mm-hmm. who has gone into um, holistic functional medicine, some of the same things I'm into, and she was at the conference. And so I was talking to her, and I asked her if she would drive me to go meet my sister, who lived in LA after the conference and drop me off. And she said, sure, which was so nice, because it was trafficking in LA and took an hour. But we had this great conversation, <laughs> and I told her basically this whole story up until that point. And she was driving. And Kay is like this really diminutive, sweet, sort of soft-spoken Filipina who, middle child who I did residency with but didn't know all that well. And so we're talking and I'm telling the whole story and I'm, I get to the end and I said, and the, the, the craziest thing about this whole thing is I still am in pain. Like it seems like it has such a nice narrative arc and it should be over and yet I'm still suffering. I don't understand why I'm still in pain. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me full on, maybe because we were in traffic, and she <laughs> but she looked at me for what felt like two minutes and she said, what makes you think you're so special, Kristen Ryman? You get to understand what this suffering is about. Your patients don't get to understand. Only God gets to know. You don't get to know. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, first of all, okay, where did that come from? <laughs> Second of all, you're so right. And at that moment, I literally was like, I'm done asking that question. I don't care if it means I'm not curious. I don't care if it means I'm not rigorous in my approach to my healing, my own differential. I'm just going to stop asking that question because it's getting me nowhere and it's only causing me suffering. And last I checked, I was only signing on for sticking around if there was no more bullshit suffering. Like, that seems needless. So I think the story ends there. Like, there haven't been that many more lessons. The pain has kind of gone away, which is interesting, mm-hmm. you know? But not in like one big moment. No, no. There was one big moment last summer or two summers ago when we were driving back from Montana when I was walking with my friend Rachel on her farm. And she said, how's your back? And I was like, huh, fine. <laughs> like I haven't thought about my back in like six months or four or two. I don't remember, but I haven't thought about it. So, yeah, it's like totally healed. And I'm totally different. And I think that difference is maybe a lot less curious and rigorous in the kind of way I used to be. Mm-hmm. But, but that's what I am now. That's what I am now. Mm-hmm. Like less, less grasping and more like pulling for the answer. Like less, less of that and more just like, oh, this is kind of what things are. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
it shows up, I notice it, I move on in my mind to something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, done um, like uh, friction fire, like oh, with a bow not. drill. It's, it's where you use the bow drill and a little stick to make a fire. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where um, the harder you try, the less success you're going to have. And it's it's really uh, it was uh, I've only done it once I've only made a friction fire once but it was a really weird moment for me it was just like a practice of, I was like kind of looking around everyone's like like kind of like oh what's going on do I need some help like figure this out and I was just kind of going at it and then I was like oh the punk's there like the punk is like the little bit of like um like the the stuff that rubs away and creates the, like the, helps you create the tinder and uh, I was like oh it's there and then I made it I'm like oh this shit's really cool and it was but it's this moment of, it's like you really can't try very hard you just do mechanically what you need to do to make the fire and it will be made and it is a really a really amazing thing to like be working on this bow drill and then you're blowing on this little bit of tinder and then poof fire it's like and that's uh, not not the same but it's like the same kind of um, I don't know seed of an idea I feel like yeah except in my story I'm not expecting any kind of explosive like, illumination yeah. I'm really I've really given up belief that that will happen or even care mm -hmm. that it will happen it's which is i find interesting it's a <laughs> i I'm a, I'm a really curious and tenacious person in the past and i've gotten really um less so and and i don't really care mm -hmm. that i'm less so anymore which is interesting it's like that part of my brain was removed <laughs> that experience yeah forced you in many ways to like remap everything yeah I remember lying in my bed during that time and thinking, if I had known coming into this world that this was going to happen, I would not have come. I did not think I was signing on for this level of pain, physical pain. And now I'm glad I'm, I'm through it, but I don't think I would choose it again because I remember how clearly I felt that to be true. Mm -hmm. Next time around, pain. No, not on the menu. <laughs> physical pain, over it. Done that. <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Yeah, Mackenzie's had some sciatical pain, very similar to what you described. So I'm like, well, we'll see what happens with this. <laughs> so you you went through this whole this this wacky wacky experience, and still in R in some ways. Um, and how how does that inform? you as a doctor, as a healer, as a gardener, as the things that you like to do? Like, how has that, mm -hmm. like, I'm at, like, you know, with a lot of near-death experiences, um, and mine included, it's, it was a very, like, binary experience. Like, there was me before, and there's me after. But you, there's the you before and you after, and there's this long fugue state in, in there. But uh, what, like, how does that inform, how did this fugue state inform you now? Well, I think what I just said is, is the biggest thing. I'm just not as attached to anyone being alive, for one, including me. <laughs> um, I'm not as attached to understanding why. Um, I, it's completely changed the trajectory of my, of my professional career, like the nuts and bolts of what I do. Mm -hmm. So I emerged from that. And for that five weeks that I was in bed and for the year and a half after and, and then to some degree to this day, I was really trying to claw my way out of a hole using tools that I had never learned before. Mm -hmm. You know, Western medicine did not help me mm -hmm. at all. Um, 
other than by making it really easy for me to say, never mind, I don't want your help anyway, you know? Um, and so I had to find a bunch of other healers who were doing Lyme differently and in a way that was useful to me. And I, at the end of all that, I had a whole bag of tools mm -hmm. that I then had wanted to share with people. So when I opened my own practice here, part of it was I need to get out of the hospital and need to be in a beautiful space surrounded by things that make me feel loved and safe mm -hmm. and comfortable. And the other thing was, I want to share what I've learned. You know, this, that might be, that was still when I was grasping for a narrative that made sense of why I had to suffer in that way. Like maybe that was also, I could end up with a toolbox that would be useful to people. And in fact, many, many people come to me for that toolbox and that's been, that's been very satisfying and gratifying to be able to give it to them. And I, I tell them my story if they want to hear it. And I say, listen, like there, there was a gift for me in this whole suffering. Like it was the shittiest chapter of my life. I thought my mom dying at 18 was going to be the shittiest. No, I thought Baxter nearly dying at age four from an asthma attack was going to be the shittiest. Actually, this was the hardest thing I've ever lived through. And, um, and it was a gift because I wouldn't be sitting in my cozy runaround room having this conversation with you. I wouldn't be sitting in my cozy treatment room with my patients, you know, having a meaningful conversation for an hour or two, mm -hmm. you know, where I really get to hear their story and they really get to, you know, share with me what's troubling them. And we get to do deep transformative work together mm -hmm. so that they can use the opportunity of this illness to transform themselves and heal at deep, deep levels. Mm -hmm. Like that's a gift. And that was happening in little tiny increments in my rapid pace job um, in the hospital or clinics, but it's happening in a much deeper way now that there's time and space and that kind of intention. Mm -hmm. And I have tools that really work. So yeah, everything's different. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, yeah, that's that's one of those things with the about the that I've found a lot with talking with people who've gone through near death experiences. It's, it's like one of those things are different. It's hard to it's hard to really pinpoint. Um, there you can in some ways, but it's uh, there's just, everything's kind of different on the other side of that kind of an experience. Yeah. So let's start talking about death a little bit more direct, like a, like through the prompts at least a little bit more directly. How do you finish the next prompt before I die? I want. Before I die, I want to learn how to surf. Mm -hmm. and play the guitar mm -hmm. I want to um, see all of my children unfold for as long as I'm around and as long as I possibly can in as much ways as they can mm -hmm. um, I'd like to travel again I used to love to travel before we had monkeys <laughs> and then it was a little impractical and mm -hmm. um, I would love to do some of that fun traveling with my husband we used to enjoy backpacking and, you know, riding on crowded trains and eating crazy food. <laughs> that would be really fun. Um, simple things like that. I want to, um, I want to bounce more. Like I want to get a trampoline <laughs> and bounce on that with my daughter. Mm -hmm. So a few nearby bucket listy things, but nothing major, I think. Right. Those aren't major. No. One thing about the bouncing is, have you ever slacklined? Yeah, we have one. Oh, yeah, okay. That, that's, yeah. that to me is my trampoline. Yeah, we, right. we, do, we do some on there, yeah. Okay. That's really fun. Um, and then about the surfing and the guitar, is there, um, 
like, is there a level of mastery that you're hoping to, is there like a, a sense of ease or a flow state? That, is that, is that sort of like the end, like, is that like what? I'm, no, it's, I'm pretty simple. It doesn't yeah. take too much to, to satisfy me. I, we, in fact, this past summer, we um, went to visit some friends mm -hmm. who we hadn't seen in a long time and they have a lake house in New Hampshire mm -hmm. and they have this boat that you fill up half of the back of the boat in this pouch under the boat and it creates a giant wave off the back <laughs> and you surf off mm. the back of the boat. And I was like, come on, really? Yes, you indeed surf off the back of the boat. So there's this like five foot board, you hop on the board, you hold onto the mm. handles and they pull you right up into this wave that's like six feet behind the boat. And you stay six feet behind <laughs> the boat. And if you get really good, you can drop the rope and stay six <laughs> feet behind the boat because that's where the wave is and you're surfing on this perpetual wave. Mm. Oh my God. <laughs> I was over the moon with this and I think I, over, I overstayed my turn. <laughs> I, couldn't stop, I couldn't stop smiling and I was just so deliriously happy. Like, have, I was really strong in high school. I was really, I was an athlete in college. I was always really strong. Mm -hmm. And then I lost 30 pounds of all muscle and I was like, a twig and a weakie and just like mm -hmm. I didn't have any muscle and yoga really helped bring everything back but like just to get up on one a contraption like that and feel like wow I can I'm strong again mm -hmm. I can do something that was amazing so I I mean if I'm honest I can kind of check it off the list I don't need much I just need a little experience <laughs> um, and the guitar I don't know I want to be able to sing and harmonize with my daughter who plays ukulele and my mm. son who's going to be a, who's into drums and my big boy who plays piano like I want family to do band. a little family band and I want to be on guitar <laughs> and singing with the guitar yeah alright good list it's a good list I don't know if it's good or bad it's my list yeah, yeah. I think I think it might be kind of short but I don't know I'm, maybe I'll come up with other stuff too is there anything else you want before you die? Yeah, I want to stay in connection with that intention of only being here for, you know, on the spectrum of things from like panic, anxiety, depression, fear, and loathing, all the way to bliss. Like, I want to be hanging out in the neutral to bliss <laughs> range of the spectrum. and. That's what I want for the from this moment forward until I die, whatever that is, is to really be able to stay on that side of the mm. of the frame. Yeah, and being being comfortable with the neutral part is also really important because uh, there's a there's a there's a astronaut Chris Hadfield, um, the Canadian who played who did the uh, David Bowie song in the International Space Station. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. That's oh, really cute. And uh, he, he has this thing about try, oh, don't, when you're in a new situation, don't be, don't try to add necessarily. Don't try to be a positive. Just be a zero for a mm. little while. Like mm -hmm. get comfortable in the space, know the dynamics that are working, and then maybe you add a point one and then a point two. Because if you bull rush in, always trying to be a pot, like a plus one, you're probably gonna interrupt some things and, and get in the way. And I think that that's, that, that you say neutral to bliss is very, like you're like, you get it. So he's like teaching emotional intelligence from space. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> he's a very cool dude. He, he wrote a book and I, I haven't read it, but I, I know he, I want to and uh, I think you dig him. Yeah, cool. I'd forgotten to look that up. I was gonna find that YouTube recently and mm -hmm. see what that looked like. It's really cute. It's really cute. He's, he seems like a, one of the, like a very genuinely amazing human. Isn't it cool how there's so many ways in which we can be instantly in touch with all the cool things happening? <laughs>
I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's a weird time to be alive. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff. There's a lot of weird stuff. Uh, but it's like a very, it's like, I, th I think the most interesting time to be alive, as long as you're a human, that is. Um, but it's still pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did that answer that question? I think it did. I think it did. What about the next prompt? Do you want to start talking about when you die? Yeah, I mean, when I die, some stuff will happen, I guess. You know? what, okay, so like, what, what, what do you want it to look like? What do you want it to feel like? Oh, okay. So it would be good, I think. My fantasy for my death mm -hmm. has always been a little different than what went down upstairs. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay, yes. A few years ago. <laughs> um, no pain. I would like to be in a place that is my home at the time, mm -hmm. surrounded by family and friends. I want to host like a giant party, like a sort of farewell party, mm -hmm. where everyone comes and everyone eats and everyone shares stories and everyone plays and falls in love with each other and everyone like forgets that I'm dying, you know, mm -hmm. says goodbye and then kind of gets sad and then comes back and then kind of moves on mm -hmm. and then I die. <laughs> like, I want to sort of like host a big going away party and then just disappear. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. You know, board games, animals, water, beauty, you know, natural beauty, good cooking, good smells. <laughs> yeah. Is there, um, has there, is there a death that, like, informs that desire? Either you want it to, like, there was a death where you're like, I, this is something that I want to emulate or take parts of, or was there a death that you're like, I absolutely do not want it to be like this. Not really. I took a class in medical school um, from hospice people, from palliative medicine, and one of the activities was like, what's your fantasy death? And that just came to me. Mm -hmm. That was like, that puts all my values together in one place, in one time, you know? Mm -hmm. People having time to like process emotions and grief. I mean, this is presuming anybody cares that I'm going to die. And you get a be, heads up. And I have a heads up, right? That's all part of it. So I can, you know, get the invitations out. But, um, yeah, you know, presuming that people are going to grieve my death. Mm -hmm. I hope they won't. Like, I'm not going to grieve it. Right? I gave them an opportunity to grieve it earlier. Like, hopefully we're all past that. But if they're not, like, they'll get to support each other and mm -hmm. talk to me and say what they have to say to me and do what they have to do. <laughs> and it'll be, um, yeah. It'll be an easy transition, I think, for everybody. Mm. I'm not worried about me. I think it'll be, I mean, like, I, I'm kind of over it. I'm not worried about it. Um, and that might change as I get older and I have higher stakes and I forget my intention to just be and, mm. you know, neutral to bliss. But if I lose my mind, I may forget all my intentions, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. There's always that possibility. But, um, yeah, that's... I, you know, I've seen bad, I've, I mean, I did a lot of time with hospice and a lot of time, like, looking at, at bad deaths, and, yeah, that's not for me. No ICU business, no, mm -hmm. like, heroics. Mm -hmm. For God's sakes, you know. <laughs> Just let me be. Let me do my thing. Mm -hmm. I did, I, I feel like it's important to mention this. I told my um, oldest boy last year or maybe two years ago about my experience like what I just told you mm -hmm. and he listened to the story and burst into tears at the end it was like how could you even consider leaving us that is so selfish and I was like yeah I can see why you would feel that way mm -hmm. and 
I don't want anyone to feel like I'm checking out and leaving them in the lurch. And on the other hand, like everyone's on their own path, right? Like mm. when I go, I go. So when I die, I hope everyone's cool with it. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've left those, or those relationships are in a good spot where you can be like, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. Ouija board. <laughs> Holidays. We'll talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And, um, I don't know. I want to circle back to, to your experience with your mother. Um, and what, like, if you're comfortable with it, yeah. um, like what was, what, like, how much time did you have to like, kind of like process and go through it and until the, di- like from like diagnosis and she's sick to like, oh, actual passing. Mm-hmm. So my mother learned she had cancer that had already metastasized to her ovaries when she had her fourth baby. So I was, oh, wow. I was 16 when my sister Courtney was born. She had her by C-section and that's when they found, they took the ovaries out and they were like, ooh, pathology. You have cancer that's medded to your ovaries and it's a really weird, rare cancer and whoa. And um, I don't really know what happened then, but two years after that, mm-hmm. she got sick. Oh, wow. So she wasn't sick then. And they took her over and maybe said, we, maybe they thought we got it all. That was it. They're like, oh, we got it all. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else we saw. We saw. So, and she felt fine. So we did nothing, I guess. And then two years later, she was sick. And within eight months, she was dead. So during those eight months, we um, spent a lot of time talking about, you know, mom's ill and it's this rare cancer. And she, you know, fought really hard or whatever. She, you know, she did all the conventional Western medicine things, chemo, radiation, surgery. She also had a clairvoyant she was working with. She also had this like Japanese herb like smuggled in. I mean, <laughs> all sorts of craziness. And um, and I think she knew she was going to die. And she died um, at our home. Mm-hmm. Um, she was home for maybe a week, I think, a week or two. Um, in our little attached library room, we set up a hospital bed. My father's a doctor. His partner and our neighbor was tending to her and coming every day. And my father's brother's wife was a nurse and she was living with us and she was tending to her. And my mom was like this shrunken corpse melting away into this bed in our living room. And on the night she died, I came home from my boyfriend's house and, um, I walked into the backyard and everyone, you know, my uncle and my aunt, and my dad, and um, we're all sitting out on the porch and it was weird. I was like, what's happening here? And dad was like, mom's, mom's probably going to pass tonight. And I was like, she, what are you? Okay. <laughs> okay. And so I went inside and, and I sat with her and um, through the course of the night, maybe the next four or five hours, everybody kind of came in to say goodbye to her. Mm-hmm. But nobody stayed but me. And I sat there holding her hand and talking to her and smelling her smell and watching her breathe. And her breath got shallower and shallower and like further and further apart. Mm-hmm. Kind of like when I was having my dilated fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember thinking, wow, she's only breathed like six times in a minute. Wow, she's only breathed like two times in a minute. Wow, she hasn't really breathed in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And that was that. So I got to be with her when she died. I was 18. That was a, a precious gift to be able to be with her. 
And uh, when you were talking about um, you staying there and people coming in and out, it reminds me of, you know, when you're at, like, a sunrise or sunset, and, or, like, like there, there are so many, like, events or, like, an eclipse. Yeah. Where they happen, but a, a lot of people will just kind of, like, look, wait for the like the, the like the money shot basically and then leave and there's not like the whole process is like watching the sunset and watching twilight and then it gets dark like that is that is a very different experience than like walking out in the parking lot and saying oh so this is a really nice sunset the clouds are really nice it's it's a very different um uh, appreciation of the whole of the whole experience and and being able to watch like that is a wild thing to be able to watch the, the, the breathing slow down and to just be there um, and I'm, I'm at, at the same time like in awe and so glad that I have not experienced that mm. yeah yeah is that an experience that you would want to have for your children if they chose it, absolutely. I mean, I think some people are called to, you know, bear witness to sacred moments, mm-hmm. and others are not. I sort of forced the birth on everybody. <laughs> you know, we prepared for that home birth, and I made everyone watch like home births on TV every night. And Greg would be like, "Do we have to watch midwife porn again?" I'm like, "Yeah, we're gonna put on the midwife porn." And so all the kids from like Tula, who was three and a half, and male who was, you know, 12, everybody. I was like, you're gonna be here. <laughs> you're gonna be here. And I, I, at the end of it all, I was like, fine, if you have to go away, go away. But it was so cool to have Xavier come out and in this room, in this space. My parents drove from California to be here. Greg's parents were here. Greg's sister was here. Abby and Andy and their daughter were here. Like, all these friends who I didn't, and the midwife, and Sarah Nicklin, all these great family docs who I was like, you have to be I just picked all my peeps and I was like, just come, bring a friend. <laughs> and I invited a bunch of residents too. I was like, come on, you guys haven't seen a home birth. You have to come see a home birth. I'd never had a home birth, but I'd watch all the midwife porn, so I knew what it was. <laughs> um, I was like, it can't be that hard. And I remember it getting so hard at one point, and I was like, it, this was a big baby. All my babies were seven pounds until Xavier was 10 pounds, three ounces. That's a big <laughs> Um how am I proud of him? I'm proud of him. He's still big as drop. <laughs> so if I had not been in water, like corkscrewing around that kid and like finding position, that wouldn't have happened well. Um, and there it was. And I was working and it was, my eyes were closed and I was in so much pain. I was like, ah, everyone, no, no touching me. Somebody put their hands on my back. And all these hands were on my back. I didn't know whose hands they were. And later I pushed the baby out. Well, the next day I watched the video. Of course, we had to make a video of it. And <laughs> you made your own entry in the midwife porn cat. Exactly. It was one of the better ones. And at the end of that, when I said, someone touch my back, put my back, put your hands on my back, put your hands on my hips. All those hands were my kids' hands. All of them. The 12-year-old boy, the 8-year-old boy, the 4-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Were like right there. <laughs> I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that, like creating that space and that invitation and that openness and that allowing that experience to happen in their lifetime. That's one of my proudest moments. Because not many other kids have done that. No, not many other kids have done that. Not many humans do that anymore, at least in these parts. So that was pretty awesome. 
And so I think some people are called to be, you know, the dog couldn't be in the room. The dog was very freaked out. Some people, <laughs> dogs, are not meant to bear witness to sacred transitions, and others are. And I think two of, I think all of my kids were capable. Two of my kids especially, I think, are, are healers who will, who will be called to bear witness to suffering. <laughs> and I don't know is that is that a weird thing to know in your kids already to like see it and like like are you like I'm gonna watch I'm not gonna push I'm just gonna no watch. I don't push that's, that's that's the other thing I've learned from all those experiences I don't push anybody anymore because god everyone's on their own path you know what mm. I mean I mean to have that fourth baby at 42 I had to get really clear that I was willing to let go of all expectations. And there's a whole other story that went into how that came about, which isn't just what you'd expect. Like with me kind of basically like releasing my expectations. I did no prenatal like checks. I did no ultrasound. I did nothing. I was like, look, if I'm going to have a baby at 42, I need to be open to it. I'm going to be open to whatever the universe sends me, whether it's a miscarriage, whether it's a baby with a hurt kid with, you know, genetic problems or I'm open. Like, there's a baby that wants to come through? Come on. <laughs> Whatever you want to be, I'll hold space for that. And that, that took a year of, like, creating that, that cultivating that stance. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, now, no, now I don't. It's really nice to have not a lot of attachment to what my kids are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like I've, that's been a relief to let go of those expectations, you know? Mm -hmm. Let them be who they're going to be. Mm -hmm. And I see a, a lovely symmetry in like the birth of that fourth child, Xavier, and what you want your death experience to be. Yeah. Like there's a beautiful symmetry to that, where it's like the same thing except in reverse. And really good Chinese food was at the birth, so I would like that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I would like some really good Chinese food. <laughs> really authentic, like no MSG, some mm. really nice, like lots of real, fatty like, meat. Like chicken feet, like real chicken Chinese. Chicken feet, exactly. <laughs> Have you had chicken feet? Yeah. Love chicken feet. It's so good. Melt it's in your so mouth. Good. Okay, how do you, is there anything else you want when you die? I mean, if I could want anything, um, I would want it to happen before I die. You know, I would like people to um, awaken to their divinity. Mm. You know, I would like people to awaken to the fact that we are all divinely connected and that we, you know, that the, 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 the treatment we give each other is the treatment we give ourselves and the treatment we give God. You know, we are all the same. We are all connected to this larger source having our little tiny siloed experiences, but the potential that we have when we remember who we are is incredible, you know, because then we just love each other, you know? Then we look at each other like we look at babies. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if each of us looked at each other like the other was a brand new baby? <laughs> like when you see a brand new baby, especially one who's not quite brand new, but who's starting to smile at six weeks, eight mm -hmm. weeks, and your heart just opens and you're like, oh, there's God. Like, I just want to send love to that baby. Like, I would love for all of us to just start doing that now for mm -hmm. each other. Can you imagine? It'd be really cool. It'd How be a very different awesome world. would that be? <laughs> right? So that's my deepest wish. Yeah, when we look at a tree that has been, like, trimmed 
in certain ways. We're like, oh, they're driven in these ways. It's going to grow in this way, and it's fine because it's a tree, like or like it's a plant, and it's going to be. It's it's just what it is. And uh, to me, that is like that's how I view. Uh, and that's why I try to view people as like where, as like a tree, like where in the past have you, like what happened? Like where, where like were you rubbing up against another tree? Um, did you get struck by lightning? Like what happened? Um, because uh, we can look at a tree and be like, oh, this is a beautiful tree. It has these things that happened in the past, but it's like whatever. And uh, mixing that with being able to look at like a baby. If I can combine those two, I think we'll be pretty happy. But it'll be uh, just smashing together. Right, like a baby tree. <laughs> yeah. Tree baby. Yeah, a little sapling. Just a little, a little bit sapling. sapling. Yeah. A little sapling. How do we get to that point of like a, people realizing their divinity? Like getting to that, like, how do we do it? Like what are the, what, what happens? Is there, is there a meteor that strikes or an asteroid, no, I guess? No, I don't think so. Is it first contact? I think it has to do with a critical mass. I think it has to do with enough light bulbs going off that the whole thing suddenly illuminates like a domino effect. Mm -hmm. I think the light bulb is just that that we're beings of love and light. That, that it, I mean, and from a very practical standpoint, like everything's better when we move from a place of love rather than fear. I mean, in the most pragmatic way, that's the best way I can say it. So I think more and more people are doing that actually. I think, I think our world is in shambles because the people who, a lot of the people who are in power are not choosing that and they're freaking out, <laughs> you know, and they're sensing a, a change of, a change of wind or wind change or a sea change, you know, it, mm -hmm. it feels like there's something kind of lapping at our shore that's mm -hmm. maybe really big. And I think a lot of people are afraid of what that is and what that means. And I think that's normal to be afraid. And so the choice is, you either fight what's coming, you awake, awaken to your own power and your own true nature, mm -hmm. or you cycle off, you know, you leave. Um, I think a lot about hospicing the dying systems, you mm -hmm. know, in my work in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I, think our, I think the hospital system and the, the medicine as it is today in America is a dying system. And I see my role there as that of hospice worker for the people within that crumbling structure. Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like I'm there bearing witness to a slow death. You know, like my near death was sort of this slow, torturous thing. <laughs> and I feel like now I'm bearing witness to that happening elsewhere. And birds are just so incredible. They're so happy right now. This little bit of wilderness. Yeah. I think a lot more structures are going to fall before we decide as a, as a world to kind of wake up together and do the good work of saving our planet, you know? Mm -hmm. So another thing I guess I have been feeling kind of hopeless about this winter, feeling more hopeful just because it's winter's leaving, and <laughs> that's part of how my brain works. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I work with kids on the spectrum and, and, you know, people with brains that don't work, with Lyme disease, and, um, and I feel like there's, there's, a, there's a lot of awareness raising, rising right now about 
how toxic our we've made our planet and and as a result how toxic our brains and our bodies have become i mean i was listening to one of the students talk about seeing an autistic patient in clinic today and i thought to myself wow when i was in medical school which wasn't that long ago you know 98 to 2004 i never once came across a child with autism not because i did medical school under a rock mm -hmm but because they just weren't around yet mm -hmm. in the numbers they are now. You know, it's one in 84 children right now, one in 50 boys. The, if the, the curve continues, we're talking about like one in three in the next 20 years. One in three humans, you know, one of us. Mm -hmm. I'll do it. <laughs> but, you know, we're trashing our world. And the autistic kids and the chronic Lyme adults and the fibromyalgia people and all the mysterious illnesses that are more and more and more common, those people are the canaries in the coal mine for mm. how we live our lives. And my fear when I choose to dabble in fear is that by the time enough people wake up, are touched by one of those things and realize, wow, we can actually do something about this to recover that kid, recover that brain, you know, my brain, when I was sick with Lyme, I couldn't remember that I left my keys in my car with the car running. Like, I'd come in the house and two hours later I'd be like, where's my keys? I'm going to my car. And I'd go out to my car and it would be running. I mean, I couldn't calculate the tip on the check at dinner because I couldn't remember the last number that I had seen and held it in my mind. And my brain came totally back. And people can recover their brains. But I worry that there's not going to be enough people who know how to do it whose brains still work <laughs> at the point that we're all ready to do it together. Mm -hmm. To clean up our environment, heal our brains, heal our children. So, you know, my uber fantasy would be that wake up happens a little sooner, people, before we're all either autistic or living with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, it'd be great if that happened soon. Yeah. Really, really great. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have the, I share a lot of the same fears. Like the things are very weird. And it's like, I see a spiral where it's like uh, an alcoholic hitting rock bottom, but it's like not, it's like, where's bottom? <laughs> like how far down are we going to go? And when we get there, will we have the capacity to climb out anymore? Mm. I mean, humans are ingenious, but not when their brains aren't working. Mm. Now their brains aren't working. So I'll be honest, a little part of me says, well, my brain's not working as well as it was before I had this crazy experience. Mm -hmm. It's working differently. Like there are different things, different strengths that I have that I didn't have before. But there are other things that I just can't focus on things that don't interest me. <laughs> if those aren't taking me from neutral to bliss, I have no tolerance for them. And my brain will not function around them. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I have great brilliance for other things <laughs> that interest me. Mm -hmm. But a lot of mundane stuff, I can't even understand. It's so interesting. It's like I'm dyslexic if I look at, you know, emails that I want nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. um, and so I worry that we're not going to have the capacity as a society to heal our planet and heal ourselves in time. And, and worry is too strong a word because I don't really... I don't really care that much. <laughs> I care on a, like a local moment-to-moment -moment level, but like big picture what you know we're all here having our experience it'll it'll be over at some point right mm -hmm. and we'll choose something else but um yeah i 
it makes me sad to, to think of like this last minute awareness that causes some struggling and suffering that if we'd only kind of figured it out a little bit sooner, we could have made it easier and graceful and maybe died trying anyway, but mm-hmm. maybe not, you know, mm-hmm. maybe reach some wonderful new utopia of like, you know, everyone's baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's like, like, what is it, is it like a, will it be like a giant, worldwide panic attack that spurs us into action. I don't know. I think we're already having the worldwide panic attack. I think that's there. We're there. The question is, you know, where are we going to go with it? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think we're in after-adapt territory. I hope, I don't know. I mean, I hope, man. Yeah, I think we're, we're there. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm probably going to die before all this, this comes to pass. At least in, like, the full force that you hope that it is. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's for the world. What do you want for you uh, in after death? Like, do you have do you have an do you have like even a, so you you were describing the the light and it's sort of being a thing that is a splinter and then do you imagine that it's a return from the splinter to the collective? I think there's a choice, just from my experiences with you know people who've died and and what they've told me and what kind of you know what the what the general kind of after death community talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's probably a choice about do I, you know, resubmerge into the all? Do I continue to splinter off? Do I like have other experiences in other realms? Like what do I do? Do I, you know, come back as a bodhisattva and like help out? Like what mm-hmm. am I, you know, and I have no idea what my role will be. I tend to um be a helper and a caretaker, even after the near-death experience. Like I, I definitely set better boundaries and I say no more often when I mm-hmm. when it's not going to take me from neutral to bliss. Mm-hmm. But I have a lot of compassion for the humans. We're silly. We're silly creatures. I love the humans. <laughs> I love them. So I don't know what my role will be. But um, I'm going to try to sign on for not pain. Not physical pain, because yeah. I feel like I'm really immersed in that for a while. I'm like done soaking in that. Yeah. All right. And um, is there? I mean, so so we talked about the the micro sort of like with you, like what you want for your your experience, uh, and then we talked about like the, the kind of global um, awakening uh, of to people to the, to their divinity. Is there what about? Is there anything in between that you want? I mean, this gets into what's my perfect death when I die, but I, I really do hope that my children, people who love me, but especially my children who, who I would like to be around to nurture as long as they need me, um, have felt that, that full circle and have felt really like they've gotten what they needed from a mother in physical mm-hmm. form. Mm-hmm. I feel like I did, and I don't think my siblings did. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I remember when, when Malin, my oldest, was two, I used to read this book to him called Love You Forever. Do you know that book? There's a guy, there's, it's about a mom and a boy and how she holds him in close and sings this song every night to him as he's growing up through the years. And she'll, it's like, I love you forever, I like you for always, for always and ever my baby you'll be. And I would read him this book and I would sing him this song. And we, at the end of the book, the, the son is, is a man and he goes to his mother's house 
rather than her like driving in the night and sneaking into it's kind of creeper like she sneaks into his bedroom <laughs> as a teenager and as an adult she like cradles him and sings <laughs> my husband was like really the kids love the book but at the end of the book he goes to her house and she's old and she's frail and he holds her in his lap and he rocks her and he sings her the song and then he goes home again and at the when a man got home he stood very long at the top of the stairs and Malin said Wait, why is he standing at the top of the stairs? What's happening? Why is he standing so long? What's going on? And I was like, well, and I was going through this period that had started recently in medical school when I was a new mother where I couldn't lie <laughs> about anything. Mm -hmm. And I still am sort of that way. And, but it was really strong then. And I was just like, well, because he's very sad. Why is he sad? Well, because his mother is dying. What do you mean she's dying? He just like wanted to know the details. So I, I painted the picture. I mean, it was all there in the text. We did a close reading together. And I said, and afterwards he said, well, uh, you're not going to die, are you? Oh, boy. And again, with the lying, I was like, yes, I, I will die someday. When are you going to die? I don't want you to die. When are you dying? And I said, don't worry, Malin. I'm not dying for a very long time. Well, when? Mm -hmm. And I said, I promise you, I won't die until you're ready. And two days later, as I was tucking him in, he said, Mommy, I'm ready for you to die now. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. I'm not sure I'm ready. Thanks for that. I mean, it was, it was a terrible thing to say to him because it was at that time where, like, tell me when you're ready to eat your green beans. Tell me when you're ready to stop crying. and I'll take you, you know, Mom, I'm ready for you to die now. So I think he's good, mm -hmm. although he is the one who cried and said, how could you say that? You're so selfish. My, interestingly, Baxter, who had a near-death experience when he was three and nearly died of the flu and was intubated in the PICU, Mazzucaro shoved the tube down his throat and saved his life, and that was that whole thing. Um, when I went around the table and said, raise your hand if you really think mommy's dying upstairs in her bed, he's the only one who didn't raise his hand, which I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I asked him months later, Baxter, how come you didn't raise your hand? He's like, I knew you'd never do that to me. <laughs> so I would really like all of my kids to be really okay with it you know like really in a good place with it know that like we were good mm -hmm. and I was still with them and you know they were ready to move on and live their lives without meeting the level of need that children have mm -hmm. you know that's what I hope after I die everyone's good it's a good one. It's a good, that's a good, like, those are three really good, like, levels of <laughs> what you want after you die. Thank you for the, you know, feedback. You're welcome. <laughs> and so we've been talking for, I think, like an hour and a half, something like that. Something like that. In that ballpark. Maybe two. Who knows? And uh, I've had a lot of fun. I hope that you did. I did too. And uh, I want to give you the last few minutes, last few moments to address the audience directly through a little wacky little microphone uh, to say um, maybe it's somebody who relates to your story, somebody who uh, is in extreme pain right now, um, or somebody who's just like, oh, this, this Christian is pretty cool. And I uh, want and you, whatever, whatever you want to say to them, uh, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to try to make anyone think I'm cool in the last minute or, or sum up any of that experience. You know, I think people will take what they take. I would just say um, to the humans, I stuck around for fun and to co-create something really awesome. And I don't really know what that is yet. 
but um, I really want to be part of a planet where we all are looking for the things in life that allow us to cultivate bliss, neutral to bliss. And so if you want to play in that playground with me, like, let's think about that together. You know, let's shine our light and do the things that we love and make choices that that bring joy to ourselves and those around us, because how fun would that be? That's all I got. It's good. What you got is, is enough, I think. Thanks. You're welcome. I'm just going for enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, the neutral to the bliss, right? It's yeah. like, just enough, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, so uh, thank you so much. This has been a real, real pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you, Eugene. Super fun. I'm really glad you're doing this. I think it's a it's a gift to the world. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. So this has been Kristen Ryman on death. Hugs? Yeah.